Welcome to the 200th episode of the Dispatch Podcast. I'm not your host, Sarah Isger, although her voice may sound closer to mine as she recovers from COVID-19. This is Declan Garvey, editor of the Morning Dispatch, and today we're going to talk about Florida House Bill 1557, the Parental Rights in Education Act. When I say Parental Rights in Education Act, there's a good chance you understandably don't know what I'm referring to, because the bill in question has almost exclusively been referred to by a nickname crafted by opposing activists, Don't Say Gay. After several weeks of debate in the Florida legislature and lots of media and corporate backlash, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed the bill into law on Monday. It's arguably one of the most controversial and least understood pieces of legislation in recent memory. In today's episode, I'll be joined by two legal experts with slightly different perspectives on the law. Gabriel Maller, an appellate litigator based in Virginia, and Eugene Volek, a law professor at UCLA who focuses on the First Amendment. I wrote about the law in our Morning Dispatch newsletter earlier this week, and they were both instrumental in helping me understand the ins and outs of what the act does and doesn't do. To set a baseline for our conversation and allow us to go deeper in the time allotted, I'll tick through the basics. HB 1557 was framed by its sponsors as a measure that gives parents in Florida more control over the public school education their young children receive on certain complex and hot-button social topics. It prohibits classroom instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity for students in kindergarten through third grade and for students in all grades if that instruction is not done in a, quote, manner that is not age-appropriate or developmentally appropriate in accordance with state standards. There are other provisions we'll get into with Gabe and Professor Volick, but that's the big one, and the rhetoric around it has gotten incredibly heated. DeSantis has argued the law is necessary to protect five-year-olds from, quote, sexualization, and his press secretary said anyone who opposes the measure is, quote, probably a groomer. Critics claim it will forbid certain students and teachers from acknowledging even the existence of their loved ones, and is the beginning of a dangerous new censorship regime in the Sunshine State. Who's right? Is anyone right? My hope is that this conversation explores the various facets of the bill and provides thoughtful, differing perspectives that will allow you to come away more informed about the strengths and limitations of this kind of legislation. And if you stick around until the end, we'll get into the rapidly changing politics of it all. Gene, Gabe, thank you so much for uh, for joining us on the on the Dispatch podcast this week. Uh, I want to kick off our conversation by talking about what happens now that uh, you know Governor DeSantis has signed HB fifteen fifty seven into law. Um, it goes into effect um, July first, which means it you know may capture the tail end of of some summer school classes, but really we're talking about next school year. Um, so some more politically involved parents and potentially trial lawyers are, are going to be champing at the bit to, to put the law's enforcement mechanism to the test. Gabe, I'll start, I'll start with you. What do you think will actually, this will actually look like in practice? I believe that the term you used the other day was lawsuit factory. I did say that. I was referring to the law's uh, cause of action for parents who feel that the schools are not adequately addressing their concerns, uh, that uh, school practice or policy may be violating this new law. Um, I think that's actually where you ask what, what happens next. The very next thing that's going to happen is that the school districts are going to have to develop procedures and practices uh, to implement the various provisions of the law, um, not just the K through three 
prohibition on classroom instruction, uh, but also uh, the grades four through 12 prohibition on classroom instruction where not age appropriate. That's one of the keystones of the bill that I think really needs to be more well-defined is what is age appropriate. I think that's something that different parents are going to disagree about. And the fact that there's a mandatory, excuse me, a parental cause of action with mandatory fee, uh, attorney fees attached uh, suggests to me that we will be seeing plenty of lawsuits as parents dispute what their children are being told, whether or not is it, is it age appropriate at, age, at a grade six, is it age appropriate at grade seven, grade eight, so on and so forth. I think that's really where we're going to see the schools have to address that first. Uh, and that's probably what's going to happen over the summer. Like I said, the, the law goes into effect on July 1st. They're going to want to have some of those policies in place when the new school year starts uh, in the fall. Right, right. And Eugene, um, you know, that that's certainly what Gabe described as a reality that opponents of the bill have been warning about for, for the past, you know, several weeks as, as this, uh, you know, has been making its way through the Florida legislature. Um, a few progressive advocacy groups have already pledged that they're going to challenge it in court. They're establishing legal defense funds for students who feel that they've been harmed by by the contents of this bill. Um, you believe that those challenges are probably unlikely to, to win out, that the law doesn't violate the First Amendment. Kind of, How did you arrive at, at that, that conclusion? Sure. Uh, so uh, public schools are branches of the government, essentially. Uh, they're basically subdivisions. Uh, school districts are of the state, political subdivisions of the state. And at least as far as the First Amendment goes, I'm going to set aside whether there's some weird state constitutional rules in Florida, which I can't speak to. But at least in so far as the federal constitution goes, a, a, um, a public school is entirely under control of the state legislature, the legislature that authorizes school districts, that, that funds schools. Um, and it can set forth the curriculum, right? Uh, the state could say every school shall teach algebra to everybody. Well, it could do that. That's not a First Amendment violation of teachers who say we don't want to teach algebra. Uh, alternatively, a school could say no school shall teach uh, multivariable calculus because we think this is a poor use of state resources. Instead, you should use more basic math, uh, teach more basic math. Again, you know, that's not anybody's First Amendment, violation of anybody's First Amendment rights. It's the state setting forth the curriculum for schools that are run by the state. Someone's got to decide what is taught in public schools. It could be each teacher. It could be the principal. It could be the local school board. It could be some state executive agency, or it could be the state legislature. The federal constitution doesn't speak to what that level of decision-making should be. Now, you might say as a practical matter, maybe it's better to leave this decision to individual teachers, or maybe not to each individual teacher, but to each principal and school board, because maybe different localities will have different views on the subject. But you could also have arguments that it should be left to, uh, uh, to the state legislature, because ultimately it is the one that is uh, it is that, that is in charge of, uh, uh, of um, uh, the education system uh, in the state. Again, it helps fund it and can help set guidelines for it. So I think there are interesting practical questions about what makes sense, but I don't think there are any real First Amendment questions or other federal constitutional questions here. Right, right. And, um, you know, some of the other uh, lawsuits that we might see uh, crop up in the next, you know, several months 
might have to do with uh, anti-discrimination statutes or Title IX violations. Do you uh, think that there's any validity to, to those arguments as well? Well, discrimination against whom? Certainly, if a school were to say uh, to a child, were to treat a child worse because the child is male or female or gay or straight, that might very well lead to uh, to, to possible uh, possible lawsuits. Uh, but uh, but th- this statute doesn't call for that. The statute uh, provides uh, uh, essentially constraint on what may or may not be taught. Nothing in Title IX says there has to be sex education in second grade. Nothing in Title IX. Uh, speaks to the curriculum of uh, uh, of, uh, of schools more broadly. So I, I don't see any any discrimination claim broad based in the statute. To be sure, it may be that some schools are discriminating against students for a variety of reasons, and that that should be punished and uh, should be stopped. But this statute uh, is does not do anything that would violate Title IX or any other federal law that I know of. Got it. Got it. And and Gabe, I want to you know let you respond to that. I know. Also, when we spoke the other day, you mentioned that um, some opponents of the law might uh, try to sue on the grounds that it's too vague, that it doesn't, you know, exactly specify to teachers and to courts um, what is and isn't uh, legal in under its its provisions. They might, you know, cite language about content needing to be quote age appropriate or developmentally appropriate. Uh, they could argue. Uh, the difference between discussion and instruction isn't all that clear. Do you think that uh, there will be lawsuits along those lines? And and do you think that they would go anywhere? I'm sure that there will be lawsuits along those lines. And it remains to be seen what Florida is going to do. Florida, um, they are going to have first crack at defining their own law. So um, people who want to sue under federal statutes or in federal court um, are going to run up against that challenge first. You know, if Florida uh, the Department of Education interprets this narrowly or at least very clearly makes clear, well, then no, you're not going to see any voidness issues. And I agree with the professor that um, I don't really see any First Amendment issues here. And as far as Title IX goes, those are going to be very fact specific. It's not going to be something that's going to just, we can say, oh, the whole law must fail. We're going to see something where a particular school employee or a particular child in the school system had some you know, discrimination on that they say is, is founded in this law, or at least in the implementation of this law. But those are going to be very fact-specific uh, circumstances. That's not going to be like a broad, you know, strike the whole thing down situation. So I, I should say, by the way, I, I agree entirely that uh, uh, that uh, much will turn on how things are implemented. You can imagine this law, you can imagine any law being implemented badly. I will say that vagueness concerns, I think, are considerably less uh, when the government is regulating ultimately what government subdivisions and what government employees do, right? If the government were to say, you know, it's a crime to be rude to people, well, it's clearly unconstitutionally vague. On the other hand, if a government were to say no public employee shall be rude to um, to customers, well, that's probably already the rule in many places, and we don't demand very careful definition. Well, that means you cannot say the following things, and you cannot use this particular tone of voice, and you cannot use uh, you cannot say things that are sarcastic in the following way, right? Uh, when it when it comes to the government controlling its own actions, including the actions of its employees, um, then I think uh, uh, it it has a good deal of flexibility. So if you look at the statute, it says uh, the operative provision it says classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties 
on sexual orientation or gender identity. That's pretty clear. I mean, there may be some uncertainty as to what's classroom instruction and what's just conversation, but you know, that's not vague, that vague as uh, legal rules go. <laughs> may not incur in kindergarten through grade three, that's pretty clear, or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. So indeed, I entirely agree. The first question is going to be what the Department of Education does here, especially with an eye towards state standards, right? If it sets forth some state standards that that uh, uh, just are completely unclear, well, at the very least, I'm not sure it would make it unconstitutionally vague, but at the very least, that would be a very bad idea because that would be productive of a lot of unnecessary litigation. On the other hand, if it says, well, here are the state standards, which is uh, starting in grade six, we expect the following kind of coverage of sex education. Starting in grade nine, we expect the following uh, kind of coverage of, of, of sex education. That may end up being really quite clear and may end up not producing even a lot of uh, lawsuits by parents. Remember, parents can get attorney fees and damages if they win. Uh, if they lose, they don't. And the attorney that they turn to might very well say, you know, you've got such a weak case that unless you're willing to pay for it out of pocket, I'm not going to expect to win the attorney fees when, when it's not likely that I'll win the case at all. So indeed, much depends on uh, just how the standards are defined, and then much depends on whether the schools actually uh, really try to comply with the state standards or try to evade them. Of course, the more they try to evade them, for, perhaps for good reason, perhaps for good educational reason, but the more they try to evade whatever state standards are created, of course, the more litigation there'll be. Declan, could I just respond to two things there I want to make really clear? First of all, this isn't a sex education bill. Um, if it certainly that would have been, I think, not uh, very controversial at all if Florida had come out and said, look, no sex education for kids K through three or maybe even K through five. But that's not what this bill did. This bill prohibits classroom instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity. It, it drilled down very specifically on the, that category, which isn't sex education. We're talking about, for example, Heather has two mommies, a children's book for, for age, children ages five and up. Um, in other words, kindergarten age, first grade age, uh, I don't believe under this law that a teacher could read the children, Heather has two mommies. It would, it would be a classroom instruction about sexual orientation, merely to reveal to these children the existence of gay, of married lesbians, uh, which, <laughs> again, when, when I, I know people have objected to us calling it a don't say gay law, but I mean, literally, I don't know how else you could describe it. You can't read Heather has two mommies because the kids might figure out that, wait, some people have two mommies, some people have a mommy and daddy, and some people have two daddies, and some people have only one mommy, or some people have only one, I mean, right? The idea that it's not, it's a sexual, a sexual, sexual education bill is just not, that's not founded. So I, I should say, I, I appreciate the correction. I said a sex education, that was not quite correct. So let's say sexual orientation education. Uh, and by the way, one could say that, you know, sexual orientation and gender identity are important facets of life, and we should be teaching them as early uh, as in kindergarten, where we should be saying, you know, some people are gay, some people are lesbian, or if we don't frame it that way, some people are in families where there's a mother and a father, some in families where there are two mothers, some two fathers, some only one mother, some one father. Um, so, uh, so, you know, as a policy matter, one could say that maybe it's a good idea uh, to, to, to introduce that early. Uh, but if the, uh, to, just to correct what I said, if the, if the state says we're not going to have sexual orientation instruction, sexual orientation education, we're not going to have classroom instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity until, say, sixth grade, and if so, here is how it would go forward, then in that case, I don't think there's going to be a lot of vagueness. And 
probably not a lot of litigation so long as those state standards are complied with. Right. That's the other thing I wanted to address about what you said, Professor, and that was this law actually does have mandatory fee awards uh, for the prevailing parent, which means exactly. if, it's, they it's, it's a, if, if they, they win, if they win. Right. right. But my point is, if the rules are clear and if they're complied with by schools, then a lot of parents aren't going to sue because they're, they're, they and their lawyers will realize they're not likely to win. On the other hand, if the standards are vague, then I totally agree. There'll be a lot of extra litigation. Uh, and if the standards are clear but not complied with, there's going to be a lot of extra litigation as well. Sure. Right. And I'm, I'm curious, that, and this question can be for either of you, um, how the law would think about the, you know, that gave that book you mentioned, Heather Has Two Mommies. Um, it very well could be in violation of this law because it is explicit, explicitly um, revealing that there are some families where there are two women um, at the head of the household. Is that a heteronormative way of looking at this in that, you know, there are plenty of children's books where the main characters are a mom and a dad, and that would not necessarily be in violation of this law um, in in the way that we're currently thinking about it. Or would it? Is 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 any any book that uh, talks about you know uh, a marriage or a head of household family situation going to be could could there be kind of counter lawsuits filed uh, in in that regard that 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 is also in violation of the law. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to talk about an example from a few years ago in Texas where a teacher, um, the school teachers were instructed at the beginning of the school year to say, hey, you should do a little presentation. Welcome back to school and do a poster board and have some photos and some, you know, decorations just saying what you did over the, the, the summer break. And an art teacher, she made one of these poster boards. And one of the things on her was a, I think it actually was a slide projector, projector, but anyways, one of the slides she showed or one of the pictures she had was of her and her fiance, her female fiance. And a week later, um, the school suspended her because a parent complained. And the basis of the parent's complaint was that showing the photograph of her and her female lover um, was, quote unquote, normalizing the homosexual agenda. Uh, and she had to sue to get her job back. She was suspended with pay, but she didn't actually get back in the classroom. She had to sue saying, oh, look, you know, if I had posted a picture of a man as my fiance, it would have been no problem at all. And that is something that we see all the time when we talk about these sorts of sexual orientation issues. You know, when two gay people show up, for some reason, that's about sex, even though it's just the mere presence of two gay people. Whereas, like, like you say, when you see, oh, just a man and a woman, well, that's just a man and a woman going about their day. Uh, we get this this phrase, this very intentional phrase, you know, they shove it down our throats, uh, said about gay people all the time, for the crime of existing in public, uh, which is something that we don't see, for example, when, oh, it's a book and there's it's a little girl and she's got a mom and a dad. We don't think about sex. We don't think about that as sex. We don't even think of that as sexual orientation education, right? We just think, oh, it's just a book. And, the, you know, they go on about their day. But for some reason, when you introduce gay characters into these books, suddenly they're gay books. And they're about uh, gay sex, even when they're not, even when they're children's books. For some reason, we get accused of, quote unquote, normalizing the homosexual agenda. So that's one of the reasons, I mean, because this has happened so often, I, that's why I, I'm, I'm firmly in the camp. I expect we'll see plenty of lawsuits from this. Plenty of uh, parents who do not want their children to hear about the existence of gay people, even in grades K through 12. So I think that uh, it's important to look at the exact language of the statute, in part because I think that's what courts, which ultimately will hear some of those lawsuits and will, will send the signal that we're the, about whether those lawsuits are likely to win or not. 
um, uh, what they're going to do. And they're going to start with classroom instruction on sexual orientation. So I think they, the question is whether this is an attempt to instruct people on sexual orientation, instruct students on sexual orientation, or whether it's something where it just sort of mentioned in passing. Let's just take an example. Imagine that in a current events class, there is a story about a prominent, uh, prominent, uh, um, uh, 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 say, musician who, who happens to be gay or lesbian. And it's sort of mentioned in passing. I don't think that if the underlying instruction is here are the stories in the news and there's a controversy involving this person, it would be viewed as instruction on sexual orientation. On the other hand, if it is a deliberate attempt to teach children about matters related to sexual orientation or gender identity, then yes, this represents the sense of the legislature that this shouldn't be done uh, until the fourth grade. And when it's done fourth grade or later, it should be done in accordance with state standards rather than just whatever the school teacher thinks, uh, thinks is proper. We might think about it in other situations. Imagine, for example, uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, the... Uh, um, this was uh, classroom instruction on, um, uh, uh, on uh, uh, let's say, uh, drugs or on, on drug abuse. Uh, then it seems to me if there is a whole class uh, session or uh, that is about, or not even a portion of a class session, that's deliberately about drug abuse, that would be classroom instruction on drug abuse. On the other hand, if there is, for example, a novel in which one of the characters happens to be abusing drugs, it's not an attempt to kind of teach students how to avoid drug abuse. It just happens to be a novel where that's an issue. I wish I had examples off the top of my head, but uh, but none come to mind. Um, then in that case, uh, um, uh, that's... Uh, uh, that's something that I think uh, uh, would not be covered. Or I'll give you one other example that I do think comes to mind. How about classroom instruction on uh, sex before uh, uh, on uh, sex uh, before age eighteen, let's say, on 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 uh, sex among minors? Well, you know, there are classes that I think would be covered. But teaching Romeo and Juliet, for example, even though there's a marriage of uh, what I understand to be very young. Uh, young people there, uh, that I think probably wouldn't be treated as classroom instruction on uh, on underage sex. In any event, that's the kind of decision that courts make pretty often in interpreting statutes. Right, right. And I mean, it definitely will be interesting to see how the courts uh, interpret all of these, all of these kind of, you know, things that were left to, to them to decide in, in the coming months here. I want to shift gears a little bit to, you know, there, there's been a lot of uh, inaccurate discussion of this law from partisans on both sides of the aisle. It does not, you know, in its final form, formally prohibit students from saying the word gay or, or talking about their non-heterosexual family members like opponents uh, of it have claimed. It also doesn't just apply to children in kindergarten through third grade, like some of its supporters um, say, you know, the the, the polling that we do have on the bill thus far is is a mixed bag, depending on how the question is asked. Some surveys show majority support for it, um, some majority opposition. But it does seem like there's room for, you know, some sort of compromise legislation. And, and Gabe, I think you referenced this earlier, that, that basically says, you know, look, official sanctioned public school curriculum for children under the age of... I don't know, eight, you can have that debate on, on the specific age, should not include anything having to do with 
sex, sexuality, gender identity, um, et cetera. I, I think it's, you know, reasonable that at that age, many parents would rather be the ones to talk to their children about those issues themselves, not a teacher that they may not know or, or that, well, isn't necessarily trained for, for those types of conversations. Um, combing through the, the Florida legislature website, um, bipartisan groups of lawmakers did actually propose amendments to this law that um, would essentially have done that, that would have, you know, changed the word uh, from instruction to curriculum, would have, um, you know, explicitly uh, defined age ranges and, and what those age appropriate things uh, it encapsulated. Do you think there was a way that the legislature could accomplish the goals that it wanted to accomplish with this legislation, address some of the concerns that parents uh, may have without necessarily creating new concerns or unintended consequences that, that we might see play out in the coming months? Well, I mean, of course there's a way for them to do something different. I, I can only speak to what they did. Um, I did, I, you know, the final version of this law um, is in better shape than the original version. The original version banned classroom discussion, which seems to me a very broad term. And the, the final version tightened it up somewhat to go to classroom instruction, which I think, um, you know, more, more focuses on what, what the teacher's doing, not just what the teachers and students are doing. So, I mean, the final version isn't as bad as the original version. I still don't like the final version I, for the reasons I've stated. Um, and sure, I, you know, if the Florida legislature wanted to take another crack at it and tighten it up even more, I mean, that'd be great, but <laughs> I got to work with the law that I've got here. Yeah. And, and, and do you think that, you know, like we've seen with uh, SB8 in Texas spawning a bunch of copycats in, in other states, um, like we've seen, you know, with, with various heartbeat bills and, and things like that, there probably will be, um, you know, other red states that try to, um, you know, enact something like this in, in the future based on, you know, what the response that, that it's gotten and, and kind of the, um, frankly, the, the political boost that it's, it's given, uh, Ron DeSantis in, in kind of a, the shadow 2024 primary. But, um, so what, what lessons do you think that, um, other legislatures should learn from this, uh, example, if, if they are going to pursue something similar, try and address those concerns, um, and, and, and what kind of concrete changes to the bill could, uh, you know, accomplish many of the same things without some of the downsides? Well, um, obviously, you know, like I said before, if we want to ban um, sexual education up to a certain grade, you know, K through three, K through five, I don't, I don't, you know, we can set that number. One of the main things that I hear from people over and over is that this is a sexual education bill. And I think in, in good faith, they don't actually know what it does. Um, so, I, you know, I would want proponents of these bills to be very explicit about what they're doing um, and not, and same thing, you know, we see so often people just refer to it as a ban on K through three instruction, which it's obviously not on its own by its own text. Um, the other provision that most that concerns me is the parental notification trigger. Uh, this law contains a provision that um, when there is a change in a student's services or monitoring related to the student's mental, emotional, or physical health or well-being, the parents have to be notified. And I'm concerned, this is the one where uh, in mid-February, actually, there was a really sharp debate about this, where the uh, opponents of the bill said, oh my gosh, this is an outing provision. And the supporters said, no, no, we just, you know, we want to know when you send, send our children to the school psychiatrist. Um, I think that provision is problematic, uh, mainly because when a student comes to, say, a student in sixth or seventh grade comes to a teacher and says, hey, teach, I'm, 
you know, it's a male student says, hey, teacher, I think I'm, I think I might like boys. I'm really struggling with this. I don't know what to do. I, I don't want to talk to my parents. They're very, uh, you know, opposed to gay people. I don't really know what to do. Well, now the teacher's in two problems. First of all, because if she responds with any sort of instruction, it has to be age appropriate. She's got that to worry about. But then if he says, hey, can you refer me to somebody? And she sends him to the school counselor or the school psychiatrist. Well, that sounds like a change in the student services or monitoring to me, which would then trigger the parental notification law. So, uh, so I, you know, I think that that one really bothers me. I, again, we'll wait to see how the schools interpret this, whether those teachers manage to find ways to address it without triggering, you know, a change in the student services or monitoring. That's the key phrase that triggers the parental notification. And, you know, some students, it's not, it's not going to be a thing. They're, oh, student comes out, great, nobody cares. It's the ones that are struggling that you sort of wonder, okay, the student says he doesn't want to tell mom and dad, and you referred him to the school counselor. Well, now we've got a real kind of a conundrum on our hands. Right, right. And Eugene, uh, the the law itself contains a carve out in with that uh, you know, automatic trigger for instances where, quote, a reasonably prudent person um, might conclude that disclosure would result in parental abuse, abandonment, or neglect. From from a legal perspective, uh, what is the barrier to making that? Uh, point kind of how how would a student uh, how might that conversation play out if a student is generally concerned about um, the the ramifications of of coming out to his or her parents? Well, you know it's hard to to, to know exactly how how it would play out play out in every situation in part because I'm not an expert on this particular corner of uh, of kind of parental rights and student. Uh, uh, student rights and the law and uh, educational privacy rules and such. But just stepping back a bit, parents have the primary responsibility for keeping their children safe. Uh, and if there is something that's happening that's affecting my child's mental or emotional well-being, as a general matter, it's really important for me to know this. I mean, what if I take the child to my doctor and the doctor says, you know, seems to be something wrong with him. Is, is there anything wrong with his mental or emotional well-being? I say, no, not as far as I know. Turns out, turns out that there have been some real problems that have been flagged at school that I just haven't been notified of because they're concerned that I might misreact. That could be really bad for the child and really bad for my ability to discharge my responsibility to the child, which is generally speaking, requires me to know everything that's happening with the child. Now, to be sure, there are some situations where you can imagine something where, look, uh, you know, if uh, if uh, uh, the parents learn something about the child, then they'll react badly. They might beat the child. They might kick him out of the house. Certainly, there are such horror stories. But as a general matter, it seems to me that parents need to know as much as possible about what's been happening to their children, especially the kind of thing that really rises to the level of mental, emotional, or physical health or well-being. How it would actually play out with regard to the exception of the reasonably prudent person, again, that's something I can't speak to with confidence. But I do think it's important uh, that as a general matter, parents uh, have more information rather than less about what's happening to their child. Um, uh, something that, I mean, again, imagine there's a flare-up. Imagine that uh, imagine that, uh, that a child has real depression, let's say, or real problems, and the school, for whatever reason, is afraid of reporting it to the parents because perhaps it's related to the child struggling with gender identity or sexual orientation. And then, then the parents can't get the child the help that they might be able to, uh, to get because they haven't been informed. 
Right. Right. And that kind of gets to where I want to take this conversation next. And that's uh, why, why this bill is being passed now, you know, what the political environment that it's kind of being thrust into. And that's one where, um, especially over the past, you know, two years, two plus years of the, of the pandemic, it's become um, parents' rights and parents' um, kind of responsibilities versus the state's responsibilities in, in the raising of children uh, have really kind of come under the microscope. And, and um, Republicans in particular have made that a, a plank of their platform heading into 2022, that they are the party of parents, that they are um, the, the party that you know, wants to, wants parents to be able to have more control over the upbringing of their child. Um, and so we're seeing kind of this, this play out in, in a way that, um, I, I think you both made very good points there that there are certain instances where, uh, you know, letting the parents know something about their child before the child is ready for them to know it, it could, could be damaging, but at the same time, parents do have a right to raise their own child and, and, uh, make decisions on, on their behalf in, in most instances. And so, um, kind of, how do you, there, there's a shifting sense. I know Gabe, you mentioned to me, uh, when we talked about this on, on Monday that, you know, conservatives didn't used to be the, uh, the ones who were advocating for kind of this more litigious society and, and, uh, you know, trial lawyers and, and whatnot. Are, are you seeing a shift in kind of the politics of, uh, you know, where the state's responsibility stops, where the parents' uh, responsibility kicks in, and kind of how free speech f fits into all of that. Well, Declan, I think you put your finger on it when you mentioned the pandemic. I think the pandemic accelerated uh, a sense that we already saw with the Trump presidency, and that is that for conservatives and uh, people on the right, there is a sense that the institutions have failed them. Uh, and that's why I think we see a lot more of this, you know, we need me mechanisms for self-help. How can I, you know, we saw that early in the pandemic, right? The various school boards and teachers unions, you know, frankly, took huge, made huge missteps uh, in responding to the pandemic and not responding to the concerns of parents. You know, like, I can't remember how many times I saw press releases which either suggested outright or strongly implied that the parents needed to shut up and let the school board handle this. That was the, you know, that was the thinking. And parents, of course, responded very negatively to that. I'm, of course, from Virginia or living in right. Virginia anyway. Terry McAuliffe. And, uh, yeah, Terry McAuliffe made huge missteps on that. And, of course, now we have Governor Youngkin uh, running the state. And I, a lot of that was the furor over the treatment of parents by schools, uh, of just outright dismissing them and their concerns. Uh, and as that, you know, that has increased over time, um, all the way through the Trump presidency. And the pandemic, I think, just sent it to super acceleration. And there's a real sense now that, to me at least, as far as the sexual orientation and gender identity uh, issues have been arising, that the post-Obergefell detente is over. Um, conservatives are now going to push back. That's why we see so many of these trans stories in the news. We see these new trans laws coming up in states all across the West. Um, and of course, you know, Florida has now passed this uh, this bill. Right, right. And um, Eugene, do you, do you want to respond to that? Sure. So first of all, I, I agree with with uh, with much of what has been said. Um, uh, but let's just step back and uh, talk about the, the litigiousness and, and the the, uh, the prospect of, of more lawsuits and lawyering. Um, generally speaking, in our in our system, I'm told it's different in Europe, but in our system, when there are rights 
they're usually enforced through some degree of participation by lawyers. Uh, could be through administrative process, often through civil litigation. And that's true whether these are rights uh, to uh, equal treatment and underemployment law or public accommodations law. It's true under copyright law, trademark law, all sorts of things. If you have rights against other people or against the government, generally speaking, that involves the, at least the prospect of litigation, although often people just comply with the law to avoid litigation. Um, on the other hand, there are some situations where we don't have rights, but we just sort of trust the government to do smart things. By and large, for example, we don't have rights to a particular curriculum, like rights to have uh, uh, to have uh, probability and statistics taught in uh, high school. You know, some high schools do that, some don't. That's usually not done through lawyering. It's usually done through decision making by principals and by uh, by uh, school boards with input from the public. So I do agree there's been something of a change in that it used to be that conservatives tended to be relatively uh, confident of the results of the um, uh, of the uh, the democratic process as filtered through legislatures, but then eventually uh, eventually empowering executive agencies, police departments, school boards, and and. Uh, uh, and various other entities, uh, I shouldn't say school boards, school boards are a little different, but let's say school systems and other entities. Um, and I think what has happened is a lot of conservatives have joined what another, oh, it's an occasional coalition partner of theirs, libertarians, but also in some measure on this liberals, in being distrustful of government. It used to be that liberals tended to be more distrustful of government than conservatives. Now I think lots of conservatives are distrustful of government, maybe too much so it's possible, or maybe understandably so. So when you distrust the government, when you don't trust your local school system, when you don't trust your local principals and teachers, and one solution might be to go to the part of the government that is really more responsive to you, at least at this point, which is the legislature, and then have them create legal rules that have to be enforced by lawyers. So yeah, I do think that a lot of conservatives uh, uh, think of many parts of the government, especially kind of the professionalized executive uh, 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 branches, as uh, uh, basically adversaries in some respects in the culture wars. And they no longer trust their judgment. And the consequence of that may be more regulation by the legislature of those executive agencies, and then perhaps more litigation uh, as a result. Right, right. And I, I am loath to to engage in media criticism most of the time. I, I think it's generally uh, not, not a good use of time. But I, I do think that, you know, when when Republican legislatures do things like what Florida did and, um, you know, Ron DeSantis signed a similar bill, uh, you know, that was subsequently struck down targeting tech companies. There's, um, you know, the, the SB8 in Texas, uh, everything like that. It gets framed as, you know, Republicans waging culture wars for political gain and and drumming up their base. Um, and then if you look at it from a, a conservative perspective, I think that you can argue pretty persuasively that, um, you know, progressives are, are waging culture wars as well. And, and this is conservatives responding. And then, you know, progressives say that they need to respond to their conservative culture wars. And it kind of is a, is a tit for tat. Um, but it, it's interesting that it's kind of shifted a little bit in that, um, you know, progressives primarily are, are waging these culture wars through non-governmental means, through, um, you know, the media, through uh, movies and television, through uh, corporate activism and, and things like that. 
and it's now the conservatives that are um you know using the power that they have which is uh, uh, eugene as you mentioned the the state legislatures the um governor's mansions the things like that to to push back and and to kind of fight back in in this uh you know broader culture war yeah, I don't think that, that that's quite right. I think progressives are, are certainly using the power of the government on their side of the culture wars when they may be entitled to. Uh, but uh, uh, but that's exactly what's happening, right? Uh, um, so it's, uh, so there's a case now before the, the Supreme Court uh, where a web designer uh, didn't want to create, uh, I think, a website for a, uh, uh, for a same-sex wedding. Uh, and... Uh, uh, the, the result wasn't just a uh, public criticism or a boycott of him. The result was legal action against him. And now the Supreme Court will decide whether the free speech clause protects the right of web designers, of, I suppose, wedding singers, of photographers, of videographers to choose not to uh, do uh, same-sex uh, related, engage in same-sex wedding related uh, speech as part of their as part of their business. Uh, likewise, uh, uh, likewise, a lot of the uh, uh, of the dispute about uh, uh, transgender athletes in sports that has to do with uh, uh, with uh, 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 schools and with sports leagues. I think operating uh, under under pressure from what is perceived as uh, uh, as a commands of anti discrimination law. Uh, in, and when it comes to this particular bill, that's a reaction to what is perceived as teaching in government-run schools, right? It's not just about what some corporation is trying to do or what Facebook is trying to do. It's about what is going on in government-run schools. Of course, in a democracy, people are entitled to try to have their uh, their ideas about culture as well as about other things implemented in by government institutions and to create statutes that may sometimes impose their will on other people uh, when that is seen as necessary to promote justice and fairness. So I'm not saying there's anything wrong as such, uh, although I may disagree with particular applications, but I don't think there's anything wrong as such with progressives using the government uh, to accomplish their ends. It just it seems to be quite clear that they are using their government to accomplish their ends. If anything, the situation, the, the difference might be a little bit in the other direction, although I'm, uh, I'm hesitant. To, I don't want to overstate it. Um, it is true that these days, a lot of the boycotts really are progressive-based boycotts, that is to say, kind of uh, uh, pressure through the through the um, uh, through a big business and small business and and uh, and kind of uh, uh, various other such things. It's not terribly new. I remember, for example, uh, there was a boycott, I think, of Florida orange juice back in the '70s because the spokes spokeswoman uh, for the Manita Bryant expressed many anti-gay uh, sentiments. Uh, but I do think there's more of that from the progressive left, in part because big business is seen as being kind of more open to the progressive left. It used to be that, in fact, big business was a major, major uh, enforcer of relatively conservative cultural norms, where it shy away uh, from things that were seen as alienating kind of conservative, traditional cultural mainstream. And I think there's a lot less of that now. This having been said, I'm sure the conservatives are, would be happy to throw around their weight in uh, 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 with, with business to the extent they do have some weight, and they may have some weight. Uh, because that too is is an important uh, tool that uh, both sides uh, uh, would like to use to the extent they can. Yeah, I just wanted to say I, I agree with Professor Volokh, and I would cite the example of Disney right this week, um, which went from being silent on the bill to now being very vocally opposed to it, um, 
in an, a series of escalating statements, you know, exchanges with the governor's office. Um, and that would be a perfect example of that, where this pressure, uh, at least as far as the corporation, you know, corporation culture is coming from the left. They're bringing that pressure now, even though if even though it's belatedly. I mean, part of the anger is that Disney didn't speak up until the, the bill the, was a done deal. Um, but I, I, I generally agree um, that we see that. Right. I mean, uh, my sense is that there are a lot of people with pretty traditionalist cultural views, a lot less than before, to be sure. I mean, a lot of views have changed uh, uh, in, in this area, but there are a lot of people out there. And I would think that uh, conservatives are trying to find ways of bringing back some of that, some of that traditional uh, influence over big business, seeing whether they can organize counter boycotts that will uh, uh, that will uh, uh, deal with uh, what they perceive are uh, excesses that uh, uh, that are against them in the culture wars. So I expect only more and more of this. I think we may, we may for better or worse, I think probably unbalanced for worse, be, be in a situation where kind of boycott and uh, demands for uh, for uh, all sorts of pressure, both on businesses and on individuals, are just going to get more and more because people uh, are uh, using them or to the extent they have the power to it. Both sides have some such power uh, as important weapons in the culture wars. Exactly. And I, I think it's important to point out just from a political perspective, you know, how much this has shifted just within the past five years, half decade. Um, I, I'm sure you both remember that you know, there was a huge uproar when Mike Pence, uh, as governor of Indiana, signed uh, legislation that, uh, you know, allowed uh, businesses to uh, have more autonomy in who they turn away uh, for for business. Um, and, and there was a huge uproar and uh, corporate backlash and, you know, businesses were deciding to, to pull out of Indiana and Pence backed down. He, you know, he ended up uh, either revoking or, or not signing. Uh, that legislation. There was, you know, the the blowback in uh, North Carolina with the transgender bathroom issue, where businesses were pulling out of North Carolina, and the governor at the time, uh, you know, decided to uh, either revoke the statute or or not sign it. Um, now, the the more businesses are getting mad at Republicans and and um, picking fights with them, the the better it is it, it seems to be for the uh, political pr prospects of these governors you know Ron DeSantis is relishing his the ability to go on Fox News every night and talk about how uh, you know woke Disney is and and how uh, you know wrong it is for them to be opposing this legislation Disney's you know if not the largest private employer in Florida one of and you know has had incredible sway uh, over over the politics of the state for the past you know 50 years and DeSantis feels totally comfortable bucking them, you know, bucking their wishes and, uh, you know, kind of even championing his disagreement with that company, uh, in a way that, you know, presumably is, is to set him up for a, a 2024 presidential run. And so, um, it, it definitely is fascinating to see, you know, that here in Washington, DC, the, um, the chamber of commerce is now donating almost equally to Democrats and Republicans where, uh, as before, you know, that was almost exclusively a Republican, uh, favoring organization. There, there are these real schisms between, uh, Republicans and big business. And, and you see that come out in, from people like DeSantis, you see, uh, Senator Marco Rubio has been making the point that, you know, corporations come around to Republicans every time they want a, a tax break, but they, you know, they don't, 
uh, support us when when we're trying to push for more of these traditional values or push back against some of the um, cultural uh, orthodoxy of, of the left. And so uh, it might scramble some of the politics here over, as you said, over the next five or five or 10 years as we kind of continue to see this schism widen over time. I, I really appreciate uh, both of you being here uh, today and, and taking the time to, to talk to us. I think that uh, our listeners will really enjoy uh, hearing your perspectives and, and kind of the, thinking through the various implications of this law and, and laws like it that we'll likely see in the future. Thanks so much for being here. You bet, Declan. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for having me. Great pleasure.